This is an apostrophe podcast production. regret to inform you the rejection podcast driving home that night the tears blinded me i could barely see the road for the first time since fifth grade i wasn't a football player anymore i was finished rocky blyer When news an NFL hopeful had been seriously injured in Vietnam made its way back to the U.S., Blyer was approached by media outlets for interviews. And he says, in a half-drugged stupor, he gave them. He doesn't actually remember the interviews, but he was quoted as saying, I'll be off my back in two or three weeks. The doc informs me there'll be no problems. I'll be back with the Steelers next year. This is no big deal. It was an uplifting quote that made the papers. Except it wasn't true. Rocky Blyer was deemed 40% disabled by the Army. His foot was gashed in three places, along his instep to the ball of his foot, across his big toe reaching the bone, and under his second toe, where the bones were completely shattered. The postcard he'd received from the Steelers' owner, Art Rooney, was encouraging. Writing Blyer to tell him, we need you, made him feel as though he hadn't been forgotten. But the truth was, he didn't know if he'd ever play again. And that thought was haunting. In the various army hospitals Blyer visited overseas, He'd roll over in his stretcher and look around at the rows upon rows of wounded young soldiers. Some wrapped in full-body casts, many had lost limbs, even more yet had seemingly lost their minds, battling post-traumatic stress, anxiety, and depression. And those were the lucky ones. It wasn't lost on Blyer that his prognosis could have been worse. The doctors told him he could eventually ditch the cane and move about the world unassisted. And perhaps most importantly, he didn't have any emotional scars, no flashbacks or nightmares. He says he had a lot to be grateful for. Blyer was flown back to the States, where he was put on temporary leave. He went home to his family for a week, then promptly made his way over to South Bend, where he hobbled into the office of his old Notre Dame coach. Blyer told his college coach he needed to play football again, said coach's secretary was in the room, and she all but scoffed in that moment. 
Shaking her head, she told Blyer that was, frankly, never going to happen. His coach kept his expression neutral. As Blyer tells the story in his memoir, Fighting Back, he later learned that when the door closed behind him that day, his coach turned to his secretary and told her she wasn't wrong. There was no chance Blyer would ever play again. He said you can't play football when half your foot is shot away. You can barely play football with a tiny blister on your heel. Adding, maybe he can restore himself enough to play racquetball or golf. After leaving Notre Dame, Blyer went back to Pittsburgh, the first time he'd been since receiving his final induction notice. It was the Steelers' Alumni Weekend, an annual gathering of former players, another title he didn't care for. As he stepped into Pitt's stadium, Plyer was met with strange looks from his team. They didn't recognize him. He had lost 50 pounds. He was limping with a cane. But as the opening ceremonies kicked off, veteran players were announced as they walked onto the field, and the crowd had no trouble recognizing Blyer. He was the war hero from the newspapers, the injured NFL hopeful with big dreams dashed against the rocks. Blyer was met with a standing ovation from 46,557 fans that day. He says... It shook the stadium. Blyer needed another surgery on his right foot, more specifically, his second toe. As his army doctor explained it, nature's way of healing broken bones is to fill the cracks with calcium. Blyer's second toe was now a mass of calcium. The good news is calcium keeps bones solid. The bad news is it hinders joint flexibility, and the bending of toes is paramount to running. So they performed another procedure to remove some of that excess calcium. But post-op, he still had no sensation in his toe. Next, they tried shock therapy, where they'd touch the bottom of his toe with electrodes, hoping to literally jolt it back to life but nothing. There was another odd-sounding option, to tie a rubber band around his toe and pull it back like a slingshot, but he says all that gave him was pain. After many failed attempts at restoring full mobility in Blyer's foot, the army doctor told him there was nothing else they could do, and Blyer was given an early discharge from the United States military. Blyer peeled off the bandages and took a look at his foot. The skin had healed pretty nicely. He thought, it doesn't look too bad, so it mustn't be too bad. The 1970 Pittsburgh Steelers training camp was only a few months away. Blyer would take rehabilitation into his own hands. The first day after his discharge from the military, Blyer set himself a conservative goal. He'd run two miles, he said, just to loosen up. But after the first two steps, he was in agony. And it only got worse from there. 
He was forced to run not flat-footed like normal, but on the outside of his right foot, putting his weight on his remaining good toes. It wasn't sustainable. But beyond that, he had lost all the stamina and lung capacity he'd developed over a lifetime as an athlete. Now he was wheezing, staggering, hacking. And to make matters worse, he kept feeling like there was a pebble in his shoe. It was irritating. But every time he took off his sneaker to shake it out, there was nothing there. He wasn't running at the speed of a football player who'd once had the best rushing average on his college team. He was running at the speed of a 60-year-old weekend jogger. And that painful realization, in tandem with the physical pain, caused him to collapse onto a nearby lawn, sobbing so hard he was convulsing. Blyer says in his memoir, he was a marginal player even when he was healthy. Now, he had no chance. After a good night's sleep, Blyer woke up more determined than ever. He was not ready to give up on his dream. He had three months, less one day, ahead of him to get into shape. So he set up a Spartan-like schedule for himself. Every day, he'd get up at 5.30 a.m., run several miles around his apartment complex. Then he'd lift weights, run sprints, and be in bed by 9.30. And he did it five days a week. When the workouts were excruciatingly painful, he'd tell himself, I'm gonna make it. Everyone says I can't, but I'm going to. And as those three months progressed, so did his stamina, his breathing, his mobility. And one day, after a particularly solid workout, he said, I'm gonna make it. Everyone says I can't, but I'm going to. By July of that year, Blyer made his way back to Pittsburgh to the Steelers' training camp. And for the first time, his teammates got a glimpse of what shape Blyer was really in. He was still limping. He'd come back from runs with his white socks completely red. And the regimen of medications and supplements he was relying on was... complex. His teammates wondered why he was torturing himself. Then one day, ever so gently, the team's quarterback, Terry Hanratty, was elected to pull Blyer aside. He told him he was just spitballing, but maybe, perhaps, instead of playing football, Blyer should consider going to, say, law school. He could give his body a rest while still making something of himself. Hanratty told him he'd make a hell of a lawyer. Blyer says he couldn't get upset. The intentions were so, so good. But it had only been a few months since his injury. He needed time. Next came the reporters. Suddenly, Blyer was a human interest story. The wounded Vietnam vet hobbling across the field in training camp made a great photo op. He said all they wanted was a feature before he was cut from the team. One reporter asked how he saw his chances at making the active roster. Blyer said, truthfully, he didn't know. Not only was he injured, but there were nine running backs on the team and only five spots available. A 
As training camp progressed, Blyer had upped his weight by 50 pounds, back over the 200 mark. He was looking stronger and feeling it. But the second he started to run, two things were apparent. He was still putting all his weight on the outside of his foot, causing the limp. And he was slow. By the end of the day, his right foot would be so swollen, he could barely get it out of his cleat. His fellow running backs couldn't fathom the degree of denial. He was clearly never going to make the roster. The offensive backfield coach worried he'd push himself to the point he'd never walk again. He spent a lot of time with the team trainers who would massage his foot, and though he never made a sound, they watched him wince in pain. The concern on the faces of the coaching staff and team doctors started to grow, and they began approaching the Steelers' vice president. They said, Rocky won't ever quit on his own. You have to put an end to this madness. The sheer volume of opinions surrounding Blyer every day compounded his already crippling self-doubt. But truthfully, there was only one man whose opinion Blyer cared about. The head coach, Chuck Knoll. Blyer describes Knoll in his memoir as a pragmatic, unemotional man. He was brought on to coach the Steelers in 1969, the year Blyer was in Vietnam, in an attempt to salvage the losing team. He wasn't known for his tact. And one week before the 1970 season began, he called Blyer into his office. As you may remember from part one of rejecting Rocky Blyer, this was never a good sign. Coach Knoll gave it to Blyer straight. He was putting him on waivers. This meant his contract with the Steelers wasn't yet terminated, but Blyer would become available to be claimed by other teams. If no one wanted him, he'd be put on the Steelers' special teams. Special teams were the players who were only on the field during kicking plays. Blyer thought if he wasn't good enough for the failing Pittsburgh Steelers, no one else would claim him. So he put up a fight. He wanted so badly to stay in Pittsburgh and prove himself. He'd be better. He'd work harder. But Coach Knoll looked him in the eyes and said, No, I'm sorry. As Blyer drove back to his apartment that night, he could barely see through his tears. All he ever wanted to do was play football. And just like that, it was over. Blyer started cursing his foot. He hated it until eventually he cried himself to sleep. Then the next morning, the phone rang. A depressed Blyer, still in bed, picked up the telephone. And to his surprise, it was the Steelers' vice president. He told Blyer he'd chatted things over with the owner, and they'd changed their minds. They weren't going to put Blyer on waivers, They were putting him on their injured reserve list instead. That way, he could stay on the team, but focus on rehabilitation. Blyer thanked him so much, the VP could barely get another word in. The next course of action would be to get Blyer a third operation on his foot, paid for by the team. And if he recovered well, they'd talk about next steps. Blyer had only one question— 
How soon did they want him at the hospital? The doctors found more shrapnel in Blyer's foot that the army surgeons had missed. One piece in particular was embedded in his fourth toe. It was the reason he'd consistently felt like there was a pebble in his shoe. Turns out, that pebble was in his foot. The surgery went well. The doctors removed all remaining shrapnel and excess scar tissue. Over the rest of the season, Blyer's only job was to rest, recover, and strengthen. But Art Rooney made it clear to Blyer that in the event he did not fully recover, he should perhaps consider another career, maybe in scouting. In fact, the Steelers could hire him as a scout. Something to keep in mind. Months later, in the final game of the 1970 season, Blyer was feeling a little more solid. Two running backs were injured, and Rooney made his way to the locker room. He told Blyer he was in for one game. Blyer said he was so excited he could barely get his uniform on. But Rooney was quick to curb his enthusiasm. He said he didn't know why a player would be so ecstatic about playing a few minutes of a single game. Scouting, on the other hand, scouting could be very rewarding. But Blyer said he'd rather play one quarter per season than be the world's greatest scout. Off-season for Blyer wasn't so glamorous either. He sold insurance, he lived in a dingy apartment, and he spent every hour he wasn't either asleep or at the office running. He never missed a single workout. He says, to sum up, his life vacillated between tedium and agony. He had improved with the last surgery, but still, his joints ached, his toes couldn't bend, he gritted his teeth through practice. Each year going forward, he knew younger, shinier rookies would be drafted to the team, edging him further down the reserve list. But every time he had visions of being overlooked on yet another game day, he flipped the script. Instead, he pictured himself in optimal shape, sprinting down the field at the Super Bowl with the crowd roaring. And that vision would push him in his workouts to run that extra mile or two. But when he spoke to the coaching staff about next season, they couldn't imagine Blyer running the football and breaking tackles. They were concerned. And when they heard he'd begun selling insurance, the VP suggested if he had a good thing going outside football, maybe he ought to consider pursuing it full-time. In the 1971 season, Blyer says if he'd been coach, even he would have cut himself from the team. He was terrible. Then one afternoon in practice, he leaned forward to pick up the ball when he heard, clear as day, a... It felt like an elastic band inside his leg was stretched out to the maximum. Then, when it snapped, the top half recoiled all the way up his thigh. He'd broken a hamstring and was suddenly forced to take a couple weeks off practice. At this point, the coaching staff had enough. First his foot, now his hamstring. As much as they all loved Blyer and admired his perseverance, the Steelers was a football team, not a charity. 
Now more voices were urging Blyer to retire. The next snap, he heard, would probably mean the end of his football career. He knew those voices were right, but by God, he was going to go down trying. And we'll be right back. Given that the Steelers had tied for worst NFL team the year prior, they were granted the first pick of the 1970 draft. So the Steelers drafted their second-string quarterback, a 22-year-old from Louisiana Tech named Terry Bradshaw. Bradshaw's first year was, to quote Bradshaw himself, a disaster. He says he had no idea what he was doing, no understanding of how to read defense. He was totally unprepared for the realities of pro football. The 1971 season ended with a 6-8 record for the Steelers. When Blyer's hamstring healed, he played a few minutes in a few games. But he says in his memoir that overall, he felt like he was just hanging out, feeling alienated, in limbo with the coaches, and not contributing to the team. He heard someone say, last year, Blyer was a cripple. This year, he's just bad. Two of his mentors from Notre Dame advised him to retire. But now, it was the off-season again, his opportunity to work on himself. He upped his running to three times a day. He started sprinting up the fire escape in his building until he could climb eight stories eight times in a row without stopping. On top of that, he worked the Steelers' off-season program religiously. And Blyer says it all paid off the first day of training camp, 1972. When Blyer stepped onto the field in 1972, the coaching staff couldn't believe their eyes. He did the 40-yard dash in 4.55 seconds, two-tenths faster than before his injury. Art Rooney said it was incredible. But it wasn't worth getting too excited about. Blyer was still their sixth-best running back, so he was put on waivers. He was not picked up by another team, so the Steelers put him on special teams. Essentially, he was sitting on the bench, waiting, hoping. He says he felt like he was running on a treadmill for the third year in a row. He had improved, but so had the Steelers as a team. They went from 1-13 in 1969 to 11-3 in 1972. And lo and behold, that season, the Steelers won their first division title in 40 years. In the playoffs, Terry Bradshaw threw what would become known as the Immaculate Reception, a game-winning play that landed the Steelers in the history books. Blyer carried the ball once all season, and he was ranked the 19th best rusher in the National Football Conference. But he said, at least he made the list. The off-season of 1972 was the bleakest time in Blyer's life. He went back to selling insurance, but his commissions were in freefall. He wasn't earning enough to cover his rent, so he was forced to move into his college friend's basement. 
the tactic he'd used in the past, visualizing himself on the field, winning, wasn't working anymore. He was staring into the abyss. He says he was 27 years old, pretending to be a football player, pretending to be an insurance salesman, with nothing to show for either. So he started getting his ducks in a row to retire. If he played just one more season, he'd qualify for the NFL pension. He channeled his frustrations into working out. His fitness was the only thing he could control, and the only thing keeping him sane. He devoured protein shakes. He upped his workout regimen from five to six days a week. He lifted weights. And by 1973, Blyer was in the best shape of his life. When Blyer stepped onto the field in 1973, the coaches couldn't believe their eyes. Again. He was bigger, faster, stronger, and more flexible than he'd ever been before. Weighing in at 215 pounds, he had to go up two full shoulder pad sizes in his uniform. And as the season kicked off, he started getting a little more playing time. He was still a special teams player, but he decided to become the best special teams player in the NFL. Flyer was given playing time in 13 out of the 14 games in 1973. The Steelers ended the regular season with a 10-4 record. They made the playoffs as a wild card, but ultimately they lost. And though it was his best season yet, it was at that time that Blyer decided to quit. If Blyer continued playing football, he was going to be playing special teams until he was 35, making very little money with very little fulfillment. He was burnt out. He read stories about himself in the press, the war hero who would stop at nothing. But he was stopping, his self-doubt as crippling as his injuries. He says he still wanted to be a football player more than anything else in life, but at some point, he'd have to face the music. Then, the phone rang. On the other end of the line was Andy Russell, a Steelers linebacker. He was calling to invite Blyer to a pro football players' dinner. But Blyer turned him down. Actually, he told him, he was no longer a pro football player. He'd just resigned in his mind. And it was only a matter of time before he said the words out loud to Art Rooney. Russell was shocked. He told Blyer not to quit. He said, come back to training camp for the 74 season. Do your best and let the coaches make the decision for you. Don't make it easy for them. Hmm. So Blyer says, once the normal period of off-season self-loathing ran its course, he decided he would give it one last shot. This would be his make-or-break season. If the last few seasons he was giving 100%, this year, he'd give it 150%, as if his career, his fulfillment, and his joy depended on it. Before heading to the 74 training camp, Blyer visited his old coach at Notre Dame. The last time he'd seen him, 
Blyer was walking with a cane. This time, he bounded in, more muscular than his coach had seen him before. His coach was taken aback, but then he couldn't help but wonder. If Blyer really was stronger, faster, more agile than ever, why wasn't he on the active roster? Blyer said he really didn't know. His best guess was that the head coach didn't believe a player could go from a, quote, invalid to a star NFL running back in a matter of five years. Or maybe the coach had him pigeonholed as a special teams player. But this year, he was going to find out. The 1974 season began. The Steelers were playing Houston, and they'd fallen behind. So with one minute, 51 seconds left in the game, Coach Knoll put in Blyer. And the game immediately turned around. The coach liked what he saw out there and told Blyer he was starting him in the second half. Blyer gained 37 yards and had one of his career best blocking games. The next week, Blyer was put in again and he scored his first NFL touchdown, which also happened to be the game-winning touchdown against the Chiefs. Blyer was the shortest guy on the team. He was shorter than most players in the NFL, but it made him all the more sturdy. And suddenly, Coach Knoll realized Blyer was the strongest blocker on the roster. Soon, he was starting every single game. That regular season, Blyer carried the ball 88 times. He rushed 373 yards, scored two touchdowns, and only fumbled the ball twice. With Terry Bradshaw at the helm, the Steelers finished first in the AFC Central Division. They made the playoffs, where the team defeated the Buffalo Bills and the Oakland Raiders. Then, Blyer heard the words he'd always longed to hear. The words he'd visualized every day running up and down his fire escape. Every moment he pushed through searing pain. The Pittsburgh Steelers are off to the Super Bowl. The Steelers were up against NFC Conference champions, the Minnesota Vikings. They'd made it to the Super Bowl the previous year as well, but lost to the Miami Dolphins. Blyer stepped out onto the field at the Tulane Stadium in New Orleans and took it all in. The crowd was roaring. Blyer started the game. He was facing one of the greatest defensive lines in NFL history, known as the Purple People Eaters. They were impenetrable and wearing purple uniforms. By halftime, the Steelers, who had never participated in a Super Bowl since the franchise was founded, were up 9-0. Blyer carried the ball 17 times for 65 yards, and by the time the clock ran out, the scoreboard read, Pittsburgh Steelers, 16, Minnesota Vikings, 6. The team melted together in a huddle. Flyer says it was an out-of-body experience. As the players and coaching staff funneled into the locker room, Flyer noticed Art Rooney. He was standing alone in the corner, taking in what had been 42 years in the making. His team, who had been called the basement dwellers of the NFL, just won the Super Bowl. Blyer walked over to Rooney and wrapped his arms around him. 
He may not have known what it was like to hunger for something for 42 years, but he knew what it felt like to hunger. He knew what it felt like to have everyone give up on you. He also knew what it felt like to receive a postcard in the mail, at his lowest, loneliest point, with three words that would change the course of his lifetime forever. We need you. The pair held each other another minute, then Blyer simply said, Thank you. The following year, the Steelers won 11 straight games, and Blyer played his first 100-yard game. With Terry Bradshaw leading the team and Blyer right next to him, the Steelers brought home their second Super Bowl championship, and Rocky Blyer made the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine. The year after that, Blyer had his best season ever, rushing 1,036 yards and scoring five touchdowns at age 30, when most NFL players hang up their cleats for good. In the 1978 season, Blyer caught the Super Bowl-winning touchdown, making the Steelers the first team in history to ever win three Super Bowls. And in 1979, at 33 years old, Blyer earned his fourth Super Bowl ring. The following year, he retired on his own terms as the Steelers' fourth leading rusher with 3,865 yards. Exactly a decade before his final Super Bowl win, Rocky Blyer was lying in a hospital bed in Vietnam with a bullet wound in his left leg and over a hundred pieces of shrapnel in his right foot. And he listened as his doctor told him he'd never play football again. It's impossible. He listened as his college coaches, the Steelers' doctors, trainers, vice president, teammates, and head coach all suggested he give up and become a scout or sell insurance. But Rocky Blyer, the man once called too weak, too small, too slow, too injury-prone, said not to have one single great special talent to make him an outstanding pro prospect, became a four-time Super Bowl champion. There is one haunting aspect when you're struggling to achieve a goal. You never know how close you really are. And here's the thing. When you are finally ready to quit, when you think you can't take any more rejection, when you think you've done all you can, you might just be inches from achieving your goal. We have seen that over and over again in this podcast. When Stephen King was ready to give up writing after 30 rejection letters, his wife convinced him to send the manuscript to the 31st publisher, and that company published Carrie. When Gal Gadot reluctantly went to one last audition before giving up acting, she landed Wonder Woman. Bat Out of Hell was rejected by 40 record companies. The 41st label signed the contract and that album went on to sell 40 million copies. Rocky Blyer was no exception. He was ready to throw in the towel, 
He lost part of his foot in Vietnam. His rehabilitation never seemed to work. He was placed on waivers. No matter what he did or how hard he worked, his dream of playing football seemed to evaporate in the haze. Then, after all the years of rejections, Rocky Blyer finally hit that wall of walls and decided to walk away. Then, a chance phone call from a teammate convinces him to stay. What Rocky Blyer didn't know was that he was on the 10-yard line of accomplishing his dream. So many times, there is 50 miles of hard road behind us when we feel like quitting. But in reality, our goal may just be a few short feet away. If Rocky Blyer had quit when he reached his lowest point, he would have never worn four Super Bowl rings. Remember that. When you're finally ready to quit, you just may be closer than you think. Never, ever give up. Rocky Patrick Blyer, recipient, Purple Heart, recipient, Bronze Star, recipient, Four Super Bowl rings, 1974, 1975, 1978, 1979, shoe size, left, 10 and a half, right, 10. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in our Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. The major source for this episode is Fighting Back by Rocky Blyer with Terry O'Neill. Other significant sources are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. We regret to inform you we're on social. Find us at Apostrophe Pod. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like Rejecting Mugsy Bogues from Season 2. This series is executive produced by Terrence Edward Michael O'Reilly. See you next time.